0: Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the Bible, which shows us Jesus so clearly. And we pray by your Holy Spirit that this morning we would see Jesus so clearly, him walking off the page of the Bible, and that we would welcome him afresh in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, if you're new, we've been studying uh, the Gospel of Mark. And as we've been trying to do so, what we've been trying to do is get a clear picture of Jesus. It's kind of like a a a wooden bench that I've been told, I've been commanded to go and fix at our house. Uh, And what's happened to it is it's been painted over and over and over again so much that really there's probably more paint than wood on the thing. And we need to scrape it all the way back to get it back to the original to know what it's actually like. And it's worth asking ourselves this morning, have we ever seen the true Jesus through the eyewitnesses of the Apostle Peter as he's spoken to John Mark and he's written this gospel? Have we forgotten what Jesus is like or have we added layers onto who he truly is? Because it's a good thing to see if our view of Jesus matches up with the Bible's view of Jesus. Because that's who we want to be worshiping. And one of the names that the Bible calls Jesus is this the Lion of Judah. But my fear, and what I often do, is so misrepresent him that I take the claws off him, and what I make Jesus the Lion of Judah is this a little pretty cat. A tame little pussycat. Now, what Mark's wants to tell us, what, what he wants to do with us is to say, yeah, 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 if you were to see the real Jesus, it would be like leaving the rectory. Now, we have a ginger tom, right? We have a ginger tom cat. His name's Miko. And it would be like having leaving Miko in the rectory, lying by the fire as he wants to do. And you leave the rectory, you leave him, this little pussy cat, and you start reading the Bible. And then when you come back to the rectory, what you find is this. That's a bit scary. And Jesus can't be scary for us because there is nothing timid or tame about Jesus. With that in mind, let's get our Bibles open to page 1008 and let's look at verses 1 to 6 again. And I'm going to entitle this part of it A Privilege Wasted. Let's read it again. Jesus left there. So he's left... um, he's left Jairus' daughter and Jairus and the woman he's healed. And he went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these teachings, they asked? What's this wisdom that's been given to him that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brothers of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them only in his hometown among his relatives and in his own house as a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there except lay hands on a few sick people and heal them and is amazed at their lack of faith. Now what we need to get if we haven't been reading through this is that Jesus in the last few chapters has calmed the storm. He's cast out a demon from a possessed man. He's healed a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years and he has raised a dead 12 year old girl. Now Jesus makes his way back to his home time. He's shown authority over storms, over evil, over sickness, over death. He's been this amazing teaching. And what would you expect if you didn't know the rest of the story, if we hadn't read it there? What do you expect is something like an open-top bus driving through Donacoli? Here he comes, Jesus again. What you you expect is the mayor, wouldn't you, a civic ceremony and giving them the freedom of the borough? You know, you have now you can walk sheep through Armagh, Bambridge, and Craig Avon without having to pay taxes. Maybe even just a, a piece in the Lurgan meal. Here he is, Jesus, this great teacher, this amazing miracle worker. That you know, starts off well, doesn't it? Verses one and two. Jesus left there, went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get this? They asked, what's this wisdom he's been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? They're amazed. At least they acknowledge that he had the power of God at work in him. They weren't like many of us today who try to explain the miracles away or pick holes in the words of Jesus as if he never said them or somebody later wrote them. They're amazed. But what I want you to do is look at verse 6 and see who's amazed there. Jesus, isn't it? And what he's amazed about is their lack of faith. So the homecoming that should have been all parties and tinsel and and everybody shaking his hand and smiling, it ends up like a damp squib rather than a bang. In verse 5, he could not do any miracles there. Now that doesn't mean that Jesus didn't have the power because we've seen over the last few chapters that Jesus has power over nature and power over the supernatural. He's got the power. We've seen that, haven't we? Yet verses 5 and 6 we read, he could not do any miracles there except lay hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Now we need to be careful here because I have heard people say and use these words in the most abusive way possible. See, when someone who is sick and people pray over them and they don't get well, please don't say, it must be your lack of faith. That can be some of the most damaging words you can say to someone who's suffering, whether that's physically or mentally. It's a cruel thing to say and it'll add to their suffering. No, no, there's something specific happening here that we need to watch. So let's get back to our reading. Verse 3. They know Jesus, don't they? So they say, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brothers of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? It's wonderfully helpful for us to see that Jesus worked. He's not like ministers today, you know? Six days invisible, one day incomprehensible. Jesus was a technon, he was a laborer, like his, his father Joseph. He had a real job, a real family. I, I was shocked the first time I read this, way, way back in the day. What do you mean Jesus' and brothers and sisters? He, did, he had a real family. You can see their names there. James, and actually the letter of James later in the Bible is from Jesus' brother. Joseph, Judas, Simon, aren't his sisters here with us? But look, the point here is that the people closest to him, they reject him. Familiarity has bred contempt. And that's why it's a privilege wasted. These people who should have knew him best and responded in kind take offense at him because they know him. Let me illustrate that. I once heard about a family who had a holiday home uh, over in England. And what they used to do was they had this green stone that they used to use as a, a, as a kind of doorstop. Until it was actually pointed out to them that that green stone was a jade sculpture from the Ming dynasty and would cost hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pounds. Guess what they did Next. They took it away from the door very, very quickly, went to their insurers, and then put it in a cabinet, shone light on it. You see, that happens, doesn't it? We don't know a thing or a person's value because we're used to it. And something like that is happening here. They weren't aware of Jesus teaching, even as miracles. They, they used their knowledge as a as a kind of the knowledge of his background, to dismiss him. See, what they knew about Jesus as a neighbor actually drew, drew drowned out the truth that Jesus is God's king, that he's his Messiah. They were judging Jesus by the little that they knew. Look, well, Jesus isn't to be judged. Because when we encounter God, he won't take away our human experience, but but... but our human experience can never contain or confine Jesus. And if we're not open to the possibility of engaging with something or someone beyond our experience, then we'll never be open to engage with God at all. See, that was the problem. Jesus times folk, they, they, they were closed in their thought process. And it can be the same with us. We can be as closed as a bank at Midnight. You ever try to get to a bank after half past four? Door's shut. You're never getting in there. And it can be the same with us. One man I talked about with Jesus a couple of years ago. It was in Spain, actually. And he said these words to me, and I nearly fell off my bar still. He says, look, I've made up my mind. Don't confuse me with the facts. It's like, what? Don't confuse me with the facts. But we know which way your mind's going. And we can do something very similar. Sadly, we can do it, even as Christians. We can use our history and our experience, things we're very, very familiar with, our tradition, our culture. We'll try to confine Jesus. We'll try to bring him down, make him fit into our little box so he's comfortable And that's actually the wrong way round. It's a dangerous thing to do. We're not meant to shape Jesus. Jesus, King Jesus, is meant to shape us. We're not meant to judge Jesus. King Jesus will judge us. So here's the question this morning. Is Jesus allowed to reshape and challenge our thinking and our actions and our lives Or have we shrunk him down? Will we honor King Jesus by allowing him to do that daily? Or will we be like these Nazarenes? That's where he is. He's a Nazareth. Will we shut him down with the little we know of him? Am I, are you open to the possibility of Jesus challenging and shaping me each time I read the Bible? Or is he so familiar to me that I no longer hear what he says when he says something new to me. I just interpret everything I hear about Jesus with the little I know to something more comfortable, less threatening, to something familiar. Last November, I, I, I wish I got one of these because I had a rotten flu. And maybe you got it too. But maybe some, someone got one of these. Put up your hand, You got a flu jab. Did you get a flu jab? Very clever, very wise. Keep doing it. But actually, what does the flu jab do? It puts a little bit of the live virus into your system so that when the big thing comes, your body's able to react, doesn't it? Is that what it's there for? It puts a little harmless amount of the virus into your body so that when the big thing comes, your body's able to react and say, no, don't want that. And you're protected. And in the same way, if we're going to keep Jesus that small little bit, it will push the real bit of Jesus away. Just enough to make sure I'm inoculated against a full Lion of Judah. A full Christ. So I'm asking myself this morning, and I want you to ask, when did Jesus last speak something that's so unexpected and so different to me that it challenged me with how big Jesus is? When was the last time that I stopped to think how big God is? And when did that challenge scare the life out of me? Because Jesus is already far bigger than I want him to be. See, Jesus has always got new things to say to us. He's always got more to show of himself to us. And one of the greatest sins is to think that your experience of Jesus is all there is. We must not let what we already know block any fresh revelation of God. Because if we go that way, like these people... We will not let Jesus do any work in our lives. Look at verse 5 again. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. 2,000 years later, people still want to conform Jesus to their pattern of thinking rather than let him conform us To his pattern that he has in mind for us. To conform us to his likeness. And so we miss out. We miss out. We really do. We miss out on him doing his work in us and through us. It's a privilege wasted. It's a privilege wasted. Well let's look at verses 6 to 13. Well what happens when Jesus is rejected? I've seen this picture over and over and over again. And I wonder if you've seen it too it's a picture of a river in Colombia. That this bridge was built, um, uh, and then there was a storm, and the river just moved. And so, this built is in the middle of nowhere, completely and utterly pointless. Billions of pounds just chucked out of the window. It's gone. And, and that's the truth. What Jesus does is, when he finds hardness, it's not going to stop Jesus. He's just going to go a different way. He's going to go, right, okay, you don't want me, right? I'll just go somewhere else. I'll just do something else. And so we go from a privilege wasted to an opportunity not to be missed, and we need to look at verses 6 to 13. That's how we look at them. See, it says here, Then Jesus went round, teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. He sent them two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. There were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except the staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. And of course, when we read that first, we think it's all about the disciples. You know, there's disciples already working in Jesus' ministry. They've been called to Jesus to go with them and to be sent to preach and to drive out demons in order to, in other words, to do what Jesus has already been doing. And this recruitment of the 12 is about Jesus increasing the coverage of his ministry. He's trying to increase it sixfold. Because he knows the time is short. A year from now he's going to be on a cross. And he needs to get through the 200 villages in Israel. And that's why the emphasis here is to go quickly. Travel lightly. No extra tunic. The mission has to be gone fast. And we can learn from this. As an aside we can learn from this. Working together is a good thing to do. Having members of staff is a good thing to have. Ministry is not just for the one. We've got to depend on God. Prayerful dependence on God and making use of hospitality. But look, what we really need to see in this passage, this bit of the passage, is that they've been with Jesus. These disciples have been with Jesus in Nazareth. They'd seen him reject, be rejected there. So they expect the worst when they head out. And Jesus prepares them for rejection. Look at verse 11. It says there, And if any, any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. I don't know how patriotic you are. I know some people at Donegal and Laird are fiercely patriotic. So what do you do when you come back from holiday? When you get there and you land at Belfast International or you get over the border from Dublin, you get your feet back on terra firma, you go, oh, glad to be home. Glad to be back to the rain and the misery. Well, you see, that's what it was like for the pious Jew. So shaking the dust off your feet was what you did when you went back into Israel after spending time in Gentile territory. That's a powerful picture. Because what Jesus is saying is that if the disciples have to shake the dust off their feet, If Israel's villages reject Jesus, then they're no better than the pagans. They're no better than the pagans. And so he's preparing them for the worst. But actually, did he see in the last few verses that some received Jesus? Verse 12 to 13, They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Such a difference from Nazareth. And I think the point that is that God is being very patient. The villages of Israel are being given every opportunity to turn to Christ. And the simple fact is the disciples are being sent out all over Israel to tell people that there's still time. And these villages take it as an opportunity not to be missed. And if you'd summarize the message there, it's there in verse 12, isn't it? It's to repent. It's to Repent. They need to turn around and live as Christ is their king, and many did. They were willing to change where Nazareth wasn't. Now our situation isn't exactly the same. We don't live in Israel. But I still wonder if that repentance is something we are willing to do. To repent and let Jesus be bigger than we ever imagined. I wonder if we're willing to do that. For Nazareth to repent, there needed to be a mental shift, a whole change of mind, a whole metanoia. They need to make room in their thinking for a Jesus far bigger than the bloke next door, the one they'd already known, that carpenter, that, that, that brother of James. Far bigger than they were prepared to allow him to be. And you and I have to repent in that way all the time. Because Jesus is not just a domesticated tomcat. He's bigger than I think he is. He's bigger than you think he is. And if we want to see God at work, we need to be open to Christ far bigger than we've ever thought of. We need to honor Jesus as Mark presents him, as God's king, God's promised son, the fulfillment of the whole Bible. Not one among many, but the only God. And that can be really scary. But actually it means that if Christ wants a relationship with us, well, it's a relationship greater than I could ever dream of. That the one who created this world wants me to know him and to love him. The one who redeemed the people of Israel will redeem me and carry me all the way to the glory of heaven. The one who said, "Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also me. In my Father's house are many rooms." He said, "I would have told you. I go there and prepare a place for you. Know, if I go and prepare a place you. Know, I'll come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am." That one who's prepared the place of heaven wants to wants to know you to know him and you to to, to be part of him. And folks, that's an opportunity not to be missed. That's an opportunity not to be missed. And so my prayer this morning is this. That you wouldn't use your culture or whatever baggage you bring or whatever church denomination you're from or however many years you've been coming here. You wouldn't let that shrink the Jesus of the Bible. And that now as we pray, and in a little second as we pray together, you would allow God To open up your mind to who Jesus is. And that you would repent and say, sorry Jesus, I have closed you off so many times. Here I am. Here I am. I'm willing for you to speak to me. I'm willing for you to change me. And that you would re-engage with Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible. Let's take a short moment of silence and let's pray together. Lord, we come and confess that familiarity with you, our culture, our family baggage, has led us to shrink you down to something no more significant than our next door neighbour. And we pray that you would forgive us for that. We pray for you to lead us by your Spirit, to repent, to, to let you be far greater than we ever thought so stretch our minds with your mighty power. Reveal to us again and again the identity of Jesus as our King. And set our hearts to buy the medium again and again and again. To repent and then let him work in us and through us. So that we may tell others of the majesty and the glory. And the power and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that we would never have a small view of Jesus. And so we ask, change us, for Jesus' sake. And this we ask in his name. Amen.